Infirmary Media. Start. People engage in stop for dueling decades. The Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Dueling decades. Hoop culture, popping pins, dropping hand grenades. Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Found out ballet and sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Dueling decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history, we just fight for it. I am Mark James and welcome back to Dueling Decades. Let's meet this week's duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, representing October of 1978, say hello to Man Crush. Yes, I got the year of my birth once again, which is always nice. October 1978, the best of for the month. Let's do this. Up next in dueling with October of 1983, it's Joe Finley. Hey, everybody. It's not quite my birth year. A couple years later, so I mean not as much to celebrate, obviously, but there's plenty in there to have a lot of fun with, so looking forward to it. Also on the dais this week, and back and bringing the best of October of 1995, welcome back to the show, Bo Craft. It's my birth month, but uh, technically I haven't been born yet, folks. Uh, I am speaking you from in utero. <laughs> <laughs> and as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. You'll remember this week's celebrity guest judge for his portrayal of Harold Wormser in the classic Revenge of the Nerds. All rise for Judge Andrew Cassess. What's up? Hey, how you guys doing? Good. How are you, man? Awesome. Awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judge's coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie, after all five rounds, we will go to a final wildcard round. Don't call it a comeback. We've been here for years. So it's time to play more. Let's go right down to Andrew Cassess, the celebrity guest judge for this episode, for the coin toss. I'm showing it to the camera, but there's no camera. So I don't know. I'm an idiot. I don't know what this is. I don't know how any of this works. But I have a, I have my, in my hand, I have in my hand a shiny quarter with heads on one side and tails. We will call it whatever it is, a pterodactyl tail on the other side. All right, Bo Beecraft, you haven't been on the show in a while. Why don't you call it this week? Let's go with the dactyl. All right, you ready? Here we go. Ba, ba, ba. And I, t- I lost it in my shirt, and it's heads. Ooh, Joe Has Finley. come out with, a, with a George Washington. Mm. All righty. All right, Joe Finley, you win the coin toss and get to select our first category. Kick that off. All right, well, let's start it off with some news. Let's educate ourselves a little bit. Uh, And I'm going to take you to October 4th of 1983, an important day in the culinary arts. We bring you to the opening of a chain of restaurants that we all know today. We all love today because, damn it, we love wings. Hooters Restaurants opened on October 4th, 1983, the first location in Clearwater, Florida, uh, Six. 
owners actually on April 1st uh, originally uh, incorporated the company saying that it was kind of a joke because they thought that this business was going to fail. They opened the first restaurant on October 4th and the location that they chose was a rundown nightclub and it had been numerous businesses in the past decade. So they created in their front a graveyard uh, to all of the failed businesses in front of them as kind of a little joke, but uh, much to their surprise, the business became a big success. They've since opened 420 locations around the world. They've opened their own airline, Hooters Air, and they opened their own Las Vegas hotel. In addition to that, uh, there's been a PlayStation game called Hooters Road Trip and uh, the Arena Football League had a team called the Miami Hooters owned by the company that owns the restaurants. So that's when it all began. Uh, think about it what you will. Uh, think about the ladies. Think about the wings. <laughs> and that's what I got. The opening of Hooters. Would that be considered judge pandering on that one? I mean, we've all seen the, it's hard to we know the scene. It's going to be hard to top it. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of debauchery and t- what what does that remind me of? I can't imagine. I can't imagine what that what that brings to mind. I could just see your face going like this right now. <laughs> That's right. Left to right for the people that can't see. All right, Bo B. Craft, what did you bring for the news round? For the news round from October ninety five, I went uh, I actually pulled a Huey Lewis in the news. I I went with sports. Ooh. The Carolina oh. Panthers in the news in October 1995. They won their first ever regular season game by defeating the New York Jets at Clemson Memorial Stadium in South Carolina. October 15th was the date back in 1995. Uh, they were actually announced as the league's 29th franchise a couple of years earlier in 93. Uh, began playing in 95. They finished with a record of 7-9 and nine, uh, in 1995, which was an all-time best for an NFL expansion team's first season. So... October 15th, 1995, the Panthers winning their first ever regular season game. That's a pretty good one. That's pretty, that's pretty historic. And they, that is quite a feat. And they're still going in position. (laughs) (laughs) Although they defeated the Jets. That's a, that's a, that's a New York team there. You know, it's a, it's, it's it's a a shit team. A little uh, little, little sore, (laughs) a little little sore on that one. Although I'm really a Giants guy, but, uh, (laughs) <laughs> but uh, you know, I love I love the Jets. Although uh, people insist that they're the New Jersey Jets, since they play in New Jersey. So I don't know. Uh, but uh, that's a, that's a good one. All right, man, crush. Let's hear what you had for the news round. All right, so let's go to October twentieth, nineteen seventy eight. And this pick right here, it caught my fancy for a couple of reasons. One, ever since selecting one of their albums earlier this year, I've become a huge fan of their music, and I kind of wonder why I never got into them in the past. And two. It turns out that the first time these guys were ever played on U.S. radio, which is a week after this gig that I'm going to talk about here, they were played on our very own local WPDH. Uh, Mark, I don't know if Corinne knows this one, your wife, growing up around here, but growing up, WPDH, it was and it still is a classic rock station. And apparently they must have been ahead of the curve on this one because it was 1978 and they were only two years in their infancy at this point. So let's take a trip down to the infamous CBGBs in New York City, where this band would play its first ever live performance in the United States, arriving just an hour and a half to the airport before the first set. The band arrived for a midnight set, and they had to give their sound check in front of the audience because they were so late. And uh, drummer Stuart Copeland remembered this performance, and he said, we landed, 
went straight to the club, plugged in, turned around and said, Hello, America. And the band's debut album, uh, Lando's D'Amour, uh, hadn't even been released as of yet. So these unknown rockers from across the pond, they knew they had to give their best performance and went over this crowd who had no fucking clue who they were really at this point. So according to Andy Summers, which is the band's guitarist, in his book, One More Train, they took a cheap budget flight from the UK. They were tired as shit. The crowd never heard of them. And they didn't even have a proper sound check. And this is New York City, so you figure the crowd was going to eat them alive. And instead, at the end of their first set, the audience was on their feet, literally howling for more. Uh, However, they lacked material for that second set. They went on again at 2.30 in the morning. This is New York City. city never sleeps. So they go back on for that second set, and they didn't have enough material to play a second set. So they played the same stuff, and Mark, this is right up your alley. Instrumental jams. They just, like, played it out, and people were digging the shit. Uh, from there, the band would go on their own little, like, self-funded three-week tour, and they crammed themselves inside of a Ford Econoline, that, you know, that van, picturesque van. They rented that thing, and one of their stops on this tour was another venue that I frequented growing up, and it was The Chance, which at the time, it was called The Last Chance Saloon, and that was in Poughkeepsie, New York, for a crowd of three people. Wow. Uh, because at the time, there was a huge storm going on. It was There was ice, there was snow, so people didn't go out. And I remember for years when I was in high school, people used to talk about this, how they played there. And This is in the 90s. People were like, oh, yeah, I knew somebody that was there. It's all bullshit. There was literally three people there. And those three guys who were there, they were there to watch a Monday night football game. And they left after a couple songs because they wouldn't pay the $4 cover charge to watch this band. Uh, <laughs> which WPDH was there, though. And WPDH played the song Roxanne on the radio earlier to get people jazzed up to go to the show. And that was the first time that was ever played on us radio. And this is the first us gig and airplay for the hall of fame band, the police. And that is October 20th, 1978 shit. You can really give them that whole week. Uh, kind of like, I don't know, maybe a year ago or so I had a pick with the beastie boys where they played the mid Hudson civic center, anything local. If I, I come across like a cool local thing, I got to bring it up. So that's what my new story is. Roxanne, <laughs> oh, that's great. That's an awesome thing. That reminds me, actually, they played a gig to like nobody because of an ice storm that happened to me one time in a, in a play I was in. We um, there was a snowstorm. They were going to cancel the show, but they were so the, the pr- production company just didn't want to cancel the show. So we ended up going on in a theater that was like for a thousand people with like I think there was five couples all oh. darted, dotted throughout the whole thing. And it was one of the best shows the most fun I ever had on stage because the audience was totally into it. Every, and we were just up there just going nuts. And, uh, and it was really like this amazing experience to, to like play for practically nobody. Cause we just had so much fun, you know, doing it and the audience felt it. And, uh, and it was just this synergistic thing. So it doesn't sound like that's what happened to the police. Uh, actually, if the guys left after, uh, they didn't want to pay the cover charge. <laughs> they sounded like dicks because I read this this story about them that was released in 2006, and they just sounded like they were there just to watch the Steelers versus, I think they were playing the Houston Oilers at the time. Houston Oilers ended up winning, by the way. Um, but in a situation like that, with the police, these guys who were at the bar and saw the show, they said that they still played out like there was a thousand people there. They said these guys, they went balls to the wall. In a situation like that, when you guys were doing that, did you try to do new things because there weren't people in the audience or you just did it normal? 
I you just do it normal, but you know everything's a little elevated because you don't you're not worried about anything, so it's very relaxed, and uh, and you just figure fuck it, you know, <laughs> and uh, and and so that it's that kind of energy where you're just having fun, and I think uh, I think it it translated and everybody felt it, so uh, so you know it's it's just it's just fun, it's like freeing, you know, there's no pressure on you, right, and you can just uh, you can just do you know do it the way you want to do it, but you know we you know you stick to the game and th- with theater you you kind of. You, know, you rehearse it so many times and uh, you don't want to throw your 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 friends off but we used to make each other laugh like in the wings when we were uh, you know uh, so I, I definitely did that uh, there was one time there was this lady in the front with uh, like an oxygen machine and you could hear it going off in the quiet moments <laughs> so we're huddled under this desk because we have to burst out of this desk and so i was just i was just making the sound to the guy next to me <laughs> and he was like could not contain like barely contain himself <laughs> And that just became a running thing. So I'm sure that uh, I'm sure I was uh, I was trying to make people laugh for their, uh, during that. So <laughs> too funny. <laughs> All right, Andrew, what do you have for a verdict for the news round? All right, the pressure is on. These are three great, you know, very impactful things. You know, the opening of Hooters and and then the, the debut of the Carolina Panthers and then the debut of the Police. It's uh, it's hard to it's hard to pick one from the other. Um, you know, I guess oh, it's it's so it's so hard. I mean, you gotta love Hooters. You gotta you gotta you know it's it's just such a such a naughty, brilliant idea. But I think I think if you, if you put them all on a scale, you gotta go with 1978, the Police, a major major you know uh, band, major moment in music, and uh, and just a, a great artist. Mm-hmm. Yep. who have been very impactful. And I remember synchronicity, how big that was when that came out. Uh, everybody had it and it was, uh, it was just, everybody was talking about it, just made everybody nuts. And, uh, and so the police definitely uh, a huge impact. Although all three of those are great. Something just the quick turnaround from three people, five years later, you're talking about synchronicity. They played Shea stadium to 70,000 people like five years later. Insane. Yeah, I don't know what when it when they well, I became aware of them with synchronicity, but I, so I don't know if that's when they hit or if they had, had been building a fan base. But that that album was so huge that uh, they, you know they just absolutely blew up. But I heard a story about Sting about the Police. Maybe he was before the Police. Maybe he was singing on a on a cruise ship, and there was a <laughs> the story is about a woman who well he complained <laughs> about. You know, because she thought his voice was so annoying. He was like, "Can you please just have the singer stop singing? Because it's just it's so annoying." Um, but that's, uh, I guess, when you're unique like that, and and Sting is uh, is is really unique. Uh, it, I remember didn't he play in the Grammys? What was that uh, Mars? No, not Mars Volta. Who did? Who did? Who did a cover? Not a cover of his song. I but never watch any uh, awards. Who was like a? <laughs> he came on to sing the part. Some guy was like being accused of ripping off Sting. So at the Grammy, Sting oh, came on and did the second verse of his song. Really? And when Sting came out, it was like, oh, that's what a rock star sounds like. Like, that's really like just blew everybody away. Like, you don't appreciate it until until you see it out of context. And then it just he's just amazing, amazing voice. And you can see why that band uh, was so was so uh, huge. Yeah. You never put yourself side by side with a high end vocalist. You just get blown away and you look like a fraud. Yeah, you got blown away, really. And it was uh, it was amazing. All right, man, crush, you pick up a point and get to select our next category. Where are we going, man? Uh, 
let's go television. So we were going to go to October 28th of 1978, and I bring you Hard Day's Night meets Star Wars. This is a $2 million budgeted TV movie. And I initially, I ran across this article in the Cincinnati Acquirer from Friday, October 27th, 1978, and it got me pretty excited. So I'm just going to give you part of the article here. And this is how it goes. So it says, tell me teenagers don't watch nighttime television, and I'll tell you you're full of hot air. Since early summer, this news desk has been getting mail from preteens and high school students demanding to know when the oft-discussed KISS special will be on TV. Well, young fans, the day has come. KISS meets the Phantom of the Park airs on Channel 5 tomorrow night from 8 to 10 p.m., KISS fans shouldn't be disappointed. Gene Simmons, Peter Chris, Ace Frehley, and Paul Stanley, members of the flamboyant, outlandish rock group, get plenty of play. It isn't a great TV drama. In fact, it's a bit corny in spots. Produced by Hanna-Barbera, it was filmed at Magic Mountain Amusement Park in Los Angeles. This one point about KISS I absolutely don't condone. And this is coming from her, not me. Her words, not mine. I'm surprised at NBC and Hanna-Barbera for giving the band their ultimate approval. It's those tongue-wagging antics by Gene Simmons, the grunting, fire-spouting kiss. All of it that's quite suggestive. In many minds, it's even immoral. And it happens to be a big part of each performance in Saturday's film. This is quite sensual for television. I give you the second biggest... Television movie of 1978, <laughs> Kiss Meets Phantom of the Park. Fantastic movie, man. Not really, but I, I had this on VHS growing up. I used to watch it all the time. As corny as it was. It's pretty frightening in some parts. Like those white dudes with the, the like albino yes. cats or something. When they're jumping off the side of the roller coaster. It's insane. Yeah, there's some really spooky, low-budget <sighs> graphics going on there. It's scary how bad it is. That's $2 million budget graphic. That's CGI from... That's the future, man. There's no C- yeah, there's no CGI of that. And the animatronics. I mean, come on. It's just great. You got guys in suits pretending to be robots. It's fantastic. Oh, dude, there, oh that's so many- right. That's right. There was yeah. a whole robot kiss uh, uh, group. Like a, like a... Oh, yeah. That was a bizarre movie. That was so weird. Like... I was too young to appreciate like just how weird it was, but I just remember like I guess I was scared of it or, or whatever. It was like I mean, Kiss was a scary band, and we I was told to, to like you, like that they were like uh, on the level of Ozzy Osbourne, where they're like biting the you know biting bats heads off and stuff. Like they were that kind of band, you know. Like that's those all the rumors around that whole kind of like kind of like thing. And they, of course, they looked otherworldly, like they were just from another planet. And uh, but uh, yeah, Phantom of the Park. What a what a crazy movie. <laughs> there's so much. If you watch it now, there's so many fucked up parts. Like, I guess Peter Chris left during one point. Nobody knew where he went. He just left. So his black stunt double played him and they just left it in. And you could totally tell it's not Peter Chris. Well, it's not even his voice. His voice was completely yeah. dubbed in the movie. Dubbed. Yep. It's horrible. <laughs> and Gene Simmons got like that, uh, like Robotronic voice or anytime he spoke it's fucking wild but yeah that's my pick (laughs) all right joe finley what do you have for the television round well nothing as sexy as that Jeez. uh 
It was debaucherous. Um, I take you to October 10th, 1983. It's another TV movie, in fact. And the title of this movie is called Adam. And it's actually a uh, real-life story about the abduction and murder of the young Adam Walsh. Uh, It was a big story back in the day. 38 million people watched the original broadcast of this, which ended with Walsh's parents appearing on the show and showing photos of current missing children. And after that broadcast, it led to information from that, led to the return of 13 children. One of those, which blew my mind, was rapper Busy Bone from Bone Thugs and Harmony. Whoa. Wow. Legit. Busy Bone got his life saved by this movie. For the next two years, they aired it once a year. And the second airing uh, resulted in... Uh, 19 more people being found, and the third one had five more people being found. Wow. Um, Adam Walsh's parents go on to be advocates for missing and exploited children. They testified before Congress over and over again. And then, m- most famously from it, uh, Adam's father goes on to host uh, America's Most Wanted. It is John Walsh, indeed, uh, where all this started. And everything sort of began from the traction that this movie got, but it was a gigantic viewership for a TV movie uh, in the early 80s, and it went on to save lives, so it was a pretty damn big deal. So, Adam, for October 10th, 1983. But the biggest thing they found were themselves. (laughs) (laughs) And over to you, Bo B. Craft, for the television round. Well, hands down, there was nothing... Absolutely nothing bigger on television in October 1995 than the O.J. Simpson murder trial. The people of the state of California versus uh, Orenthal James Simpson saw the famed athlete and actor embroiled in legal proceedings after he was accused of murdering his wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ron Goldman, by stabbing them to death in June of 1994. And uh, at 10.07 a.m. on Tuesday, October 3rd, 1995, An estimated 100 million people worldwide watched or listened to the verdict announcement that Simpson was acquitted on both counts of murder. The case itself, obviously, still talked about, what was it, a couple of years ago, they had like at least a couple different uh, like docuseries or, uh, you know, series about the whole thing. Uh, Countless conversations, you know, did he or didn't he? Countless books, like I said, documentary series, whatever. Uh, His career obviously never really recovered, uh, and the biggest uh, unfortunate aspect of that is that we never got uh, the return of Deputy Nordberg in any subsequent (laughs) would-be Naked Gun films. But that's my pick for television, October 3rd, 1995, the verdict announcement of uh, O.J. Simpson's murder trial. Wow. That's That's huge. Let's go down to Andrew Cassess for the verdict for the television round. Wow. Like, you know, when you said kiss... I was thinking, God, I love that just brought back memories and just I, I, like what a crazy thing that was. And I love that. Um, and then the Adam Walsh thing, um, I remember was huge. It was just a, a very impactful, like just had a lot of gravitas. And, uh, and uh, you know, of course, we wouldn't have had Bones, Thugs and Harmony if, if not for that, <laughs> uh, which is just That's on huge. its own. Thuggish, ruggish. But there is there was nothing bigger than the O.J. Simpson trial. That was just that's a global event. That's American history, and uh, and uh, uh, God, what what a, what an what an amazing 
time, a crazy time, you know, just cable television, everybody glued to the TVs talking about it all the time. And of course the verdict was just, was, uh, you know, uh, I remember the split screens they had. Um, uh, but you know, I, I missed the whole Bronco chase. I don't know where I was. I was like traveling on a train somewhere. And of course, cell phones weren't that big a deal. They existed, but you know, people didn't, didn't have them. And I remember I walked into my buddy's apartment uh, and they were all glued to the TV. I'm like, hey, guys, what's going on? They're like, oh, my God, are you fucking kidding me? What do you mean what's going on? It's like, like this whole everybody's watching this thing. Like, what are you talking about? I was like, yeah, well, what do you mean? Oh, wow, that's crazy. And then uh, and then, you know, the, the chase ended like shortly after that, the whole thing on his lawn and everything. It just, un- just blew everybody's minds. And then the verdict just, blew, you know, it was that's uh, a global event. Maybe not global, but that's American history right there. You got to go with the uh, OJ Simpson trial, 1995. That was uh, huge. It's sad that that's American history. Cause like the yeah. two television things I can remember where I was when it happened was like nine 11 uh-huh. and that verdict. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. My yeah. history teacher rolled out the TV. We knew it was coming that day and we watched it. And I remember the bell rang and he was like, yeah, you guys can stay. And like the whole class stayed to watch this. Cause I think every other class was probably doing the same shit for that well everybody like it was the only thing happening like you, you say like 9 11 like that was the only thing happening in the world at yeah. that time and that you know for that span of for that day and the oj simpson was like that it was the only thing happening there was nothing else to do um that was that was any any bigger than that what are you gonna go bowling like, yeah. you know, like <laughs> maybe you could probably listen to some bone thugs in harmony I'm sure. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm sure even bowling alleys. You had the you had the regulars in there at 10 a.m. on a, on a October morning smoking yeah. cigarettes, watching yeah, the probably verdict were, in between probably frames. Were. <laughs> Henry, I got up? a turkey going. Get off of that. <laughs> this is a perfect game. I don't think he did it because of the gloves. <laughs> My shoes don't fit. That doesn't make me a murderer. <laughs> All right, Bo Beecraft, will you pick up a point in that round and tie the game? But more importantly, you take control of the board for our final one-point round. I think I'll move with uh, with film here. A film that, I, I, you know, I was kind of thinking about this, and it, I, I suppose it's fairly accurate that uh, arguably started the concept of the whole cinematic shared universe that seems to be the hot product of the past decade or more at this point. Um my pick for best film in 1995 comes from Kevin Smith, and that, of course, would be Mallrats. Uh, yeah. Written and directed, as well as starring Smith, Mallrats came to the big screen on what would have been my seventh birthday, October 20th, 1995. The uh, yeah, yeah. film also starred Shannon Doherty, Jeremy London, Jason Lee, Claire Forlani, Priscilla Barnes, Michael Rooker, and even the man himself, the late, great Stan Lee, uh, which really kind of, again, ties together the whole shared universe concept, or or is this universe is referred to as the Viewisk universe. Uh, $6.1 million budget. The film grossed a box office haul of $2.1 million, so it lost money. But it was given uh, <laughs> fairly unfavorable reviews initially as well compared to his previous endeavor in the cult classic Clerks. But like that film, the predecessor, Mallrats, has gone on to become a cult classic of its own. And now they're coming back around. They're they're making uh, the follow-up to Mallrats. I guess it's going to be here in a year or two. Uh, supposedly everybody is returning that is still alive. Um, so there you go. Mall rats, October twentieth, nineteen ninety five. 
Well, who else besides uh, besides uh, Stan Lee is is gone? Everybody's still alive, right? Uh, fat Kevin Smith. <laughs> Shannon Doherty <laughs> yeah, is. Right. Uh, right. What is she? Yeah. Stage four, right? Yeah, so, I think she's yeah. uh, in pretty rough shape. So we'll yeah. see how that pans out. But I suppose if they've already shot it, then then uh, they're probably in the clear. Now is this is this Mall Rats two or is this Mall Brats like they were talking about a couple of years back? That's a great question. I have no idea. Uh, I think reboot. it's Mall Rats two. Really? It's just straight up Mall Rats two. Yeah. I fantastic think. i'll be i'll watch it if we're back in theaters by then man i hope yeah, i hope really. it's mall rats with two t's and they have the band rat in there <laughs> <laughs> two t's indicating a sequel it just all ties together i get it i get it all right joe finley what do you have for the movies round all right well i've got an interesting one actually because uh it's you know we talk about big franchises and stuff like that, and sometimes you'll get a couple of movies from one franchise, and especially with the Marvel of it all now, in one year you'll see multiple movies from one franchise. This year you saw multiple movies uh, of the same franchise, only not so, because we're talking about James Bond, and this was the year that Octopussy came out, but that is not my movie. I am going with a different James Bond movie, not part of the Eon, the Broccoli universe of it all i'm talking about october 7th 1983 the release of never say never again uh directed by irvin kirshner his follow-up to the empire strikes back uh this was a big deal because basically this um story this book uh was written by ian fleming but based on a screenplay that he co-wrote with kevin mcclory and after that happened kevin mcclory sued and settled and got the rights to make a version of this movie, but the movie was in fact Thunderball that he had done, and he got to uh, he got to remake it uh, as he saw fit, and he and he had the rights to that forever. If you see the, uh, there's a wonderful documentary about kind of the making of the uh, entire Bond series, and it really goes into that, and it shows this guy tries to go to the well with Thunderball many times and take pieces of it and make multiple different movies. But the biggest part of all of this is he got Sean Connery to return to the role of James Bond 12, after, 12 years after having a fallout with Cubby Broccoli and leaving the Bond franchise. So he was going up against Roger Moore, you know, the same, they were supposed to be actually released the same month, but this one got pushed back a little bit. Uh, other people who were featured in the movie, Max von Sydow played Ernst Blofeld, uh, Kim Basinger was in it, Rowan Atkinson, and Bernie Casey played Felix Leiter. Um, what else do we have? Uh, Connery was originally just brought in to be a creative source. He was going to help uh, develop the story, help with casting, and because he felt he was too old to play the role of Bond. And then uh, I think as a little bit of money came in and as a little bit of a, hey, this could be a pretty big fuck you to Cubby Broccoli, uh, he, the role became more and more appetizing for him. So the uh, movie itself actually uh, made $160 million, which is uh, the equivalent of $418 million today, if adjusting for... Uh, inflation and all of that stuff and playboy cover model and actress barbara carrera got a golden globe nomination for best supporting actress for the movie uh just another little side thing uh there was an injury to uh sean connery on the movie because his martial arts uh instructor broke his wrist during training that martial arts instructor was a young steven seagal wow so that's what i've got the non-bond bond movie that was really just a slight on the Broccoli family. Never say never again, October 7th, 1983. So wait a minute, is that not considered canon? It is not. 
Oh, wow, really? If you buy the box set, you're not getting Never Say Never Again. Uh, well, because they don't own it. They, yeah. The Broccoli's don't own yeah, it. Yeah, that's the one Bond film I've never seen just out of principle. Oh, wow. <laughs> Is this the one where he gets into the fight where he's, like, working out? He's, like, in a, like, there's, like, a weight bench around, and Sean Connery's wearing, like, a like some gray sweatsuit. I vaguely remember it. I think it's it an is. awful fight scene. Yeah, I believe yeah. you're right, because he was old as shit. Yeah. Well, <laughs> right. And yet still not as old as Roger Moore. <laughs> He's still alive. I must eliminate all free radicals. <laughs> he looked great though when he came back and he did um The Rock. Oh yeah. And all those movies in the late nineties, he was he was almost like he was in better shape than he was for that Bond movie. Yeah. Womack. <laughs> Welcome to the Rock. <laughs> yeah, he never. That was the, his last thing, though. Or no, no, it was um, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen or something, right? Yeah, he hasn't yeah, been yeah, on yeah, film yeah. since then, right? That's well, because like he turned down the Matrix and Lord of the Rings because he didn't get it, so he had to right, League of Extraordinary right. Gentlemen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would have been amazing, right? <laughs> what was he going to be in the Lord of the Rings? Like Gandalf. Gand- Gandalf. Gandalf. Yeah, that makes sense. You shall not pass. <laughs> <laughs> could have been so much better i would have actually watched it all right man crush what did you bring for the movies round oh man let's go october 25th 1978 this is actually the premiere date it actually they played it again the release date was the 27th but we'll go with the 25th uh this is a slam dunk for this round seriously there are just some picks that are hands down the winner uh <laughs> this is it i mean the timing of this movie the way it's shot the classic direction, the score. There is literally nothing wrong with this movie. Matter of fact, I venture to say this is arguably the best horror movie ever made, at least in my opinion, and at least the most popular. And I so wish that the 80s got to claim this masterpiece, but it belongs to the 70s. Uh, this epic horror movie uh, it was created on a sub-million-dollar budget and took in around $70 million at the box office, it's about $300 million in 2020. And that's insane loot for a movie that with an R rating, especially in 1978. <laughs> One of the biggest independent releases ever. Uh, the movie, it was originally titled The Babysitter Murders. And it became the standard for every slasher movie that has been created after. Uh, that said, the movie, it also sta- spawned eight sequels of its own, depending on how you'd like to view some of them two reboots and two other movies that are in the fold for 2021 and 2022. And in total, the franchise made well over $600 million and God knows how much money has been sold in merchandise on this flick. I'm not even going to like stray away from my, I always say this thing like money isn't everything. This is a landmark movie. So you could throw all those numbers away and whatever This is a landmark movie. And I'm sure everyone has pretty much figured out what this movie is already and I haven't provided really that much info about it at all. So that's how you pretty much know this is a surefire classic. But let's rewind back real quick to the, the budget. This was done for just over $300,000. And it's beautifully shot. I mean, it's amazing. So whenever I hear this argument, when people say to me, we used to get like these independent movies all the time. And, and people would be like, well, if it had a bigger budget, it'd be better. And then it makes me think back to this movie. If you have an amazing storyteller and director like John Carpenter, you don't need a huge budget. 42 years after this release, I just watched it again last night. Small budget movie. And $300,000 in 1978 was nothing. It's still creepy and it's iconic. And on January or on October 25th, 1978, the boogeyman was brought to life. 
along with Jamie Lee Curtis and, of course, Donald Pleasant in the John Carpenter masterpiece, Halloween. That is a scary, scary movie. That terrified me, that movie. That's just so, that's like, unbelievably creepy movie. What really puts it over the top, though, is that it's a William Shatner mask. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that always got me. As soon as I learned that, it ruined Halloween for me because I can never watch it the same the whole time. All I'm yeah. seeing is inverted William Shatner. <laughs> <laughs> and it's one of those weird things, too. Like back in 1978, when I was flipping through newspapers and I came across this, um, we do this every day. When I, whenever we're looking for new movies to post on our Facebook, www.facebook.com forward slash dueling decades. Uh, every morning we, we release the new releases and usually the top six that we can find. And there are movies that nobody has ever heard of that had two page spreads, you know, full full page ad. This had like a little maybe three quarter page was not a big deal. It was just a horror flick that was coming out. Completely yeah. took the world by storm. It's nuts. Unbelievable. I uh, yeah. Michael Myers was such a big hulking guy. But uh, a couple years ago, I was doing a, a, a convention with the nerds people. And the guy who played Michael Myers is now a director whose name is Nick Castle, who was there. And we ended up we ended up going to a go kart place with <laughs> with, <him. laughs> with Michael Myers. And I'm like I'm like bumping Michael Myers in a go kart. I'm like this is crazy. This guy this guy will kill me in my sleep. This guy will stalk me, and then I'll never that'll be it. I'll never get away from him. I know what happens. I saw Jamie Lee Curtis. She couldn't get away. All I'm picturing is is you know him full costume riding a go kart, which would be hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With the mask on. Yeah. <laughs> just slowly sure passing you. Just. <laughs> he wasn't he wasn't trying to pass me he was just pacing me just staying right behind me very slowly the whole time because eventually you'll slow down and then finally you fly by him you pass him you get halfway down the track and all of a sudden he appears in front of you He's again right there yeah <laughs> oh god oh my god michael knows every shortcut right. and donald pleasant donald pleasant's one of my favorite actors brilliant uh, i love brilliant. him uh he's he's just always so like just just 110 percent in every every role he's just totally there but um i think it's a little unfair though because because i i have to be honest i haven't seen mall rats wow i i i yeah i'm a i'm a little embarrassed about that i have not seen mall rats so i i maybe i'm judging it unfairly i don't know and when you said I, never say never again that's one of my favorite bond movies and and uh and um you know uh, connery is great and i remember how big a deal it was that connery was coming back to do it um and uh, and because to me uh roger moore was james bond that was the first james bond that i was really aware of from i guess what is it uh, the spy who loved me i think and uh and so he was james bond so i had no idea about the about the the whole the whole connery uh, uh, era of it and uh, of course he is the best bond but um but uh, but halloween is uh, yeah, I don't know if it's the way Man Crush sold it that just got me all enthusiastic about it, but but that uh, yeah, that's a classic. That's a, a an absolute hands down classic, and uh, and so yeah, it's got to go to 1978. I got to ask you guys, did you watch the last one? Yeah. What did you think of that? Because I, I know like people were kind of all over the place, and there was a lot of like excitement when it came out, and then people were like, ah, it sucked, or you know, oh, it was awesome. Like, where were you on that? I was I I liked the movie overall. I was a little 
let down because they basically decided this is a sequel to part one. Part two's out the window because right. John Carpenter drunkenly wrote that he was that she was his sister, and that's not a thing. So they're like that. He's not. They're they're not related. They were going. We're skipping that. We're going through which I which sucks because I liked Halloween too a lot. Yeah, I wouldn't have minded them cutting from there over. So like that was a little something, especially because Halloween H two O, all these things they were related all the way through, and they just decided randomly. No, not anymore. So that was my only real complaint about it. But it had it had a lot of the good feelings. Um, and maybe it was also just being a step up from the Rob Zombie ones, which kind of drove me nuts. Uh, that just, it, it put me, it put me in a pretty good place all in all. It's still not as good as the originals, but <laughs> oh, you know, of course not. I'm just, I'm psyched that Danny McBride is involved with the other two because mm-hmm. he's hilarious. And I just, I want to yeah. see what he'll do, you know, further with yeah. horror. I'm just waiting for the remake of Halloween three. Oh God, <laughs> <laughs> that would be pretty awesome too. I like, I don't like reboots, but I think that movie never got its due because it's part of the franchise. Right. Yeah. And if it was on its own. Correct. Yeah. If it was a it's standalone movie and you forget that it has anything to do with the Halloween franchise, that's a good yeah. movie. Tom Atkins. He's the man. All right, man crush. You picked up a point. You jump out to a lead heading into the first two point round. What category are you going to select? All right, let's go hot products. I might as well uh, double down since I just did a little bit of Halloween. Might as well stick with it. So we got October 1978, and I I rarely double dip. But in this case, I had to. This was just too good to pass up. It's it's Halloween season. And so it's time to discuss some Halloween costumes, 1978 edition. And initially, like sometimes you do all the research for this stuff, and you just want to do a simple internet search sometimes and see what the talking heads have to say. Maybe you find something so you can move on to the next thing. So there's this thing about blogs. So if you if you write one and you're the first one, it gets spun over and over and over and over again. So one blog said the hottest Halloween costume from 1978 was Tony Monero from Saturday Night Live. I was like, what? Saturday Night Fever, not Saturday, Saturday Night, Night, Night Live. Night yeah, Saturday Night Fever. It doesn't even matter because it's not it. So, of course, like I find the same info in about like four or five other blogs. So at this point, I am convinced that this is one bullshit story that has just been put on rinse and repeat. And now this selection wasn't going to be that easy. And I had to go digging. So I did. I got looking for any mention of Tony Monero costumes. There was one. And Saturday Night Fever costumes, none. <laughs> Zero. However... <laughs> I did find the hottest Halloween costumes from 1978, and they sure as hell weren't any of the disco variety for the mere price of $3.99, roughly $16 in 2020. Actually, I found it on sale at some places for $1.99, too, which is fucking nuts to see. But you could be <laughs> a demon, a star child, a cat man, or a spaceman. Uh, the most popular costume that season would be the personas of Peter Chris, Ace Freely, Paul Stanley, and Gene Simmons. Like I said before, the members of KISS. Uh, And let me tell you, these masks are creepy as hell. The hair alone (laughs) is frightening. It's like, it just looks like you never used conditioner in your life. And it's dry, (laughs) frayed out looking. And uh, they're the type of masks that we all know these when we were kids. 
maybe Bo doesn't, but you put them on and they'd cut into your skin. Yes. The inside would get wet as you were breathing into this oh. fucking piece of plastic. And it came with the uh, the plastic gown that you wore over your clothes. That just said kiss on it. It wasn't like a complete. No, dude, I, I'll show you the pictures there. They're, yeah. The uh, the body just said kiss, but the masks were yeah. incredible. And matter of fact, if you go on eBay, they're on there right now. Hundreds of dollars. Oh, yeah. And if the thing is in a box, like 500 bucks. Easy. Wow. Um, but here's an article from 1978. Uh, where they're talking about these very costumes, no mention of Tony freaking Monero. All right. It says, if you're looking for a kiss costume department, this is a ghost of another color. Oh, if you're looking for, if you're looking for Cause they were talking about Hershey kisses in the beginning of the article. If you're looking for a kiss in the costume department, that is a ghost of another color. The popularity of the far out rock group, infinitely unkissable, but calling itself kiss has invaded the hobgoblin market right there on the rack, shoulder to shoulder with the witches and the Draculas. You can find the band's drummer, Peter Chris, with a hollowed out eyes staring at you from a weirdly made face under frizzy black hair. So even in 1978, they pointed out the same thing. I, I would tell you guys, uh, just Google image uh, 1978 kiss costumes and just see how freaky these freaking things look. But that's my hot product, 1978. Wow. I got it up here. Yeah, they are pretty freaky. And yeah, the 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 plastic the plastic like uh, costume part of it that was always such a huge disappointment. Oh yeah, like you want to like you have this vision in your mind that it's going to be like this amazing. You're going to like step into this character, and then you, you're basically wearing a trash bag or something. Like that. <laughs> well, it's, it's great for trick or treating and cutting meat. but tell me that mask if they made a horror movie now and the killer was wearing one of their masks it would be scary oh yeah it would be great it would be great uh yeah that would be very scary i wonder if they would get the licensing for it it's 500 bucks for one of these things yeah gene will sell anything so i mean (laughs) it's not gonna be cheap it's not gonna be cheap it's all it's all for the kiss army (laughs) All right, Bo Beecraft, what do you have for the hot products round? Uh, well, you know, it's my favorite round as always. Uh, <laughs> they're really, I, if you think about it, wrestling was huge in the 1990s, uh, arguably even bigger in the 80s, but 90s it kind of, you know, shifted demographics and was kind of a hot thing again. Uh, so I went with wrestling for this year's hot product of October 1995. I'm talking the pay-per-view that took place October 22nd, 1995. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, that's WWF's In Your House 4, the fourth pay-per-view of the series, uh, the first WWF pay-per-view to take place in Canada since WrestleMania 6, yeah, WrestleMania 6 in 1990, uh, you got, uh, <laughs> Yokozuna, they really put him through the ringer twice that night, he was in two matches, oh, man. uh, yeah, Hunter Hearst Helmsley defeats Fatu, uh, Bart and Billy Gunn, the Smoking Guns, uh, defeat the the One Two Three Kid and Razor Ramon. Gold Dust fighting Marty Jannetty, King Mabel, rest in peace versus Yokozuna, rest in peace. That ended in a uh, double countout. Razor Ramon also in action again. Uh, the British Bulldog versus Diesel. We'll talk about that one. That was there's an interesting note on that one. Um, Henry Godwin over Psycho Sid. Bret Hart defeats Isaac Yankum, DDS. Whoa. Bonus points for anybody who knows that is. Uh, and Owen Hart and Yoko Zuna versus uh, Bam Bam Bigelow and Savio Vega. Wow. So, so many dead bodies. <laughs> <laughs> These days, yes. 
Uh, but the interesting note about I, I guess the like the Diesel and British Bulldog main event was was so bad uh, that Vince McMahon himself was was like livid. He was doing commentary, and and at some point he reportedly yelled through his headset, uh, <laughs> like like threw it off after the match and after the pay per view had finished. He yelled horrible, fucking horrible at Diesel <laughs> in the ring. While this pay-per-view is still going out, it's stormed to the back and, and I guess just berated uh, Bruce Pritchard, who has been on again, off again with the company for like the past three decades. Uh, so that bad. So if you've got the WWE Network, go back to In Your House 4, October 1995, watch the match, and uh, you'll see it's it's not the best by most standards. But that's my pick for hot <laughs> now product. I have, to, I have to see what <laughs> I this know. is all what does the worst wrestling match uh, ever uh, look like? And to think that the Yokozuna Mabel match was better quality. <laughs> oh my God, yes. <laughs> but that was the hot product, 1995. Uh, that's that's hot, as hot close as I'm going to get. How many buys did that get? Because that was like in the dark era, right? That's, I have no, uh, no idea how many buys that would have gotten. And we're not talking fake diesel, right? That didn't happen yet. That's real diesel, I believe. Oh, yeah. real- <laughs> oh man! Well, because you had you had Isaac yeah. Yankum. Yeah, on fake the card. diesel was Isaac Yankum. Yeah, was. Uh, that's true. Well, he had everybody else going out there twice. Why not? <laughs> it's fair enough. Yeah, they must have had a very thin roster around that time. <laughs> yeah, making dudes pull double duty, especially Yokozuna. Like, well, the fat what? dudes. Yeah, all the fat <laughs> dudes are like, "You got to work twice tonight, lard ass." <laughs> <laughs> Right. It's not going to give you a heart attack soon. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Joe Finley, what do you have for the hot products round? All right. Well, I'm, we're going to dive deep into MS-DOS for this one, guys, because it's the early 80s and fuck it. Uh, <laughs> October 25th, 1983, we've got a, a word processor program called Multi-Tool Word uh, that was released for MS-DOS. And it was actually a very interesting one because it was actually one of the few MS-DOS programs that can that was capable of using the mouse. It had some initial kind of resistance because, you know, there were word processors out there. And I guess the early adopters of computers was like, well, we've already got one. What's the point? Uh, very shortly after, they realized that they didn't like uh, the multi-tool word uh, title, so they renamed this product, and it got the name that it still has today. It was the release of Microsoft Word. Wow. Uh, this was, again, this was an MS-DOS uh, program, and then it eventually got uh, released for Macintosh, as well as the Atari ST. And then when uh, Microsoft finally released Windows, it essentially became the standard in word processing and is still the commercial standard today. Yes, there's Google Docs and free options as such, but uh, you go to most offices and you're going to find Office 365 and you're going to be typing documents into Microsoft Word. And and that was its release, October 25th, 1983. Wow. Yeah, Word is huge. I see a pattern emerging where they just, they every time you you you, you know the order, everything tops every the next one. And I was like, <laughs> oh, the Kiss Mask, those, are, those sound pretty good. <laughs> and then wrestling, you know, who, who doesn't love uh, wrestling? Although, uh, to be fair, my era was the Hulk Hogan era. Um, uh, you know, oh, it was, yeah. it, it, you know, that, that whole era was just crazy. Um, and Gorilla Monsoon. I remember Gorilla Monsoon. <laughs> Bobby um, Heenan. Yeah, yeah. It was just, it was just uh, uh, who is it? Uh, not not the George the Animal Steel. Uh, Jesse the, the Body guy, Oh, Captain Lou Albano. Oh, yes, with the rubber bands. What a, what, a, what, a, what, a, what a, the most bizarre thing in the world. Like, just so bizarre. But, like, like he was, and then he became, like, a beloved character. Like, just, uh, it's, it was an unbelievable time. 
Uh, but Microsoft Word is uh, is still a hot product. Well, maybe it's not the hot product, but that's a huge uh, uh, that's a huge product that has certainly uh, made an incredible impact in uh, in computing. And so you got to you got to give it to Word. You got to give it to the '80s on that one, I think. All right, Joe Finley, you picked up two points on that round, which ties the game heading into the final music round. Would you like to go first, or would you like to defer to one of these other gentlemen? I'd like to defer. I want to go last. Dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun-dun. Bo Beecraft, <laughs> you're up for the music round. I think I'll defer to the end of the game. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, all right, music from 1995. This is a pretty seminal album for a lot of people. October 2nd, 1995, the release of what would go on to become uh, arguably one of the most revered albums of all time in certain circles. Certainly one of the best-selling records in their uh, native UK. That album would be the second record from Oasis, titled What's the Story, Morning Glory. Uh, really kind of launched them into overnight success territory from being this uh, kind of small British-based crossover uh, indie act to literally a worldwide phenomenon. It sold a record-breaking 345,000 copies in its first week spent 10 weeks at number one on the UK albums chart and then reached number four on the US Billboard 200, making it the band's most commercially successful release. Four major hits, a couple of them reaching number one on the US Alternative Songs chart. Again, kind of like uh, Mall Rats, it initially had from critics kind of, you know, meh reviews, uh, but it's gone on to become, like I said, considered one of the, the most cutting edge albums maybe not cutting edge but uh, one of the most prolific albums of its of its time and maybe all time uh it's appeared on several lists of the greatest albums in rock music uh the 2010 brit awards morning glory was named the greatest british album since 1980 which is a very specific category to be in <laughs> but it made it uh it sold over 22 million copies worldwide making it one of the best-selling albums of all time also the uk's best-selling album of the 1990s so i guess a across the pond they're very specific about best-selling per decade uh and and garnering accolades that way but uh, of course the band has continued to have great success to this day uh, and brothers liam and noel gallagher are famously close so uh, it's good to see that you know career longevity paying off i know can't they just get along what's uh, uh, what's wrong with them who knows they make too much money that's yeah <laughs> they give the best interviews ever just a fat wedge of cash <laughs> separates them both uh emotionally from each other but there you go october 2nd 95 the uh second album from oasis what's the story morning glory oasis good one all right man crush let's hear what you have for the music round all right top that all right let's go uh october 11th of 1978 here's the sophisticated Six studio album from one of the greatest songwriters of our generation, at least. Uh, at least I think so. This album comes right off the heels of his last release, which was just over a year from this album. Did you guys realize that? Have you, when you're doing the 70s and we do these music picks, they did albums like bang, 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 like right after one another. They would, yeah. they would release one album and they would just use that momentum to keep churning out amazing albums. But like in the eighties, once I began, like I feel like we didn't get that. It started to wane. We usually had to like wait a few years. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. The production, the, it became more of an event yeah. than uh, than you just producing as much material as you can. You try to like, like maybe it was Thriller that changed all that. 
you know, it, it became, uh, I don't know. It's your, it it's your form. Of, yeah, maybe it was because of like music videos or whatever. I like, I don't understand yeah, why it yeah. stopped because like when you look at this, you look at the seventies, um, I haven't had the seventies that much the past couple months, but every time I have had it, it seems like the artist has released almost like back to back to back, or at least maybe they have like one off year and then they release two albums in two years, uh, I don't know. It's just crazy. They were being uh, slave-driven musicians. Well, maybe the cocaine was better. Stamp out the widgets. <laughs> yeah, maybe. More music. Um, yeah. But you'd see something like this. This is a really short album. There's only nine tracks in this one, but four of them would go on to be singles. The album itself would be, it would hit number one on the Billboard 200. Uh, it would go seven times platinum. It would earn two Grammy Awards, uh, Album of the Year, and Best Male Pop Vocal Performance. And uh, stylistically, this album was like a slight departure from his previous album. And you got a lot more jazz in this album, which is also referenced in the title of this album, being that 52nd Street in New York City was renowned for jazz uh, being like the epicenter after Prohibition. And uh, it went from probably like into the early 60s where this guy was probably growing up. Uh, so some people, uh, they might not like Billy Joel's voice. And I've actually heard him say that he doesn't like his voice. But fucking hey, this dude can write some lyrics. And I've always loved this line. First song of this album, Big Shot. When you wake up in the morning and your head's on fire and your eyes too bloody to see. Go on and cry in your coffee, but don't come bitching to me. It's fucking like, dude, everything. Like, And I could just keep going and embarrass myself with the rest of that song. Like, I didn't just do that, but. <laughs> oh, it's no big sin to stick your two cents yeah, in when you know you where to stop. leave it alone. Whoa. <laughs> you can't you stop. You line. You couldn't see it was time to go home. No, 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 no. You had to be a big shot. Didn't you? Yes. <laughs> so great. I mean, it Billy. Yeah, a great song and like 10 years ago or so he was on howard stern he said that was about bianca jagger but i've also heard him say it was about himself so oh, wow. but the cool thing is with a lyricist like that you can kind of give every song your own interpretation and all of his songs seem like that i mean especially from this album you had my life on here honesty big shot until the night those were the four singles you got off 52nd street this is an amazing album. You got Rosalinda's Eyes. Yeah, great song and it, on that it album. Goes, it, Zanzibar is Zanzibar a great song great. on that album. And there's only nine songs. It's a whole. It's a whole. It's a whole album. You great. could burn through this in like what forty minutes, and you could play it all over again. Like it never happened. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> uh, but yeah, October eleventh, nineteen seventy eight. Billy Joel, Fifty Second Street, and I will see you next November, Billy Joel, when I. Finally, get to see you in concert after buying your <laughs> tickets two years ago. <laughs> you you bought t tickets two years in advance, or they just got postponed. It got postponed, so COVID. I bought it oh, okay. last October, and it was supposed to be in March, and then it got pushed from March to September, and now it's November. It's like the end of November, twenty twenty one. Is that a Madison Square Garden yeah, show? MSG oh, show. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. I saw him at Madison Square Garden. It's it's a great show. Uh, I can't wait. It's, yeah, I'm sure it's it's, it's probably just like a sing along with Billy Joel. Yeah, right. basically. <laughs> but he's just got so many hits. Yeah. Like the whole night is just one hit after another, you know, one great song that you want to hear. Oh, and uh, and it's, it's yeah, it's 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 pretty great. Hopefully he stays in his house, doesn't leave for the next year. Just don't want anything to happen. <laughs> no, just, yeah, don't, don't let anything stay happen. Stay home, Billy. I'm knocking on wood for you. He's listening. Laura, listen to the show. <laughs> yeah, Billy yeah, Joel. Good guy. <laughs> All right, Joe Finley. Why don't you wrap up this game with your selection for the music round? 
All right, well, I got a pretty good one here. It's an album that was a debut album and is really a representative album of the decade, which is, uh, you know, something you kind of strive for when you're looking for a pick here. I give you from October 14th, 1983, Cindy Lauper's She's So Unusual. Uh, the album itself won the Grammy for Best New Artist. Well, she won the Grammy for Best New Artist. Uh, the album was nominated for Album of the Year, Best Record for Girls Just Want to Have Fun, and Best Female Vocal Performance. Uh, the album had Girls Just Want to Have Fun, obviously, Time After Time, two of probably 80s most seminal female uh, songs, if not songs, just period, as well as She Bop and When You Were Mine, which was written by Prince. Uh, it was number four on the wow. Billboard 200 and remained on in the top 30 through 1985. Like wow. this was a, this was a gigantic deal. Uh, she became so intensely mainstream. She was present at the first WrestleMania. Uh, she befriended Captain, Captain Lou Albano, Lou, yeah. who was in her first music video. Yes. Uh, yes. Just, you know what I mean? And she was just like, you know, as a singer and songwriter and just an icon of the eighties, as far as music, as far as fashion, as far as just the overall aesthetic of the decade itself. I can't think of anybody more uh, representative of that than Cindy Lauper. So I give you her debut album, which was a gigantic one. She's so unusual. I didn't know time after time was on that album. That's mm -hmm. a, that's a mega hit. It's one of my favorite songs from the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great song. She, she's a great, and she wrote that, I think. Right. She did. Which one did Prince write? Uh, it's called When You Were Mine. When You Were Mine. Okay. When You Were Mine. No, <laughs> that's, that would be Prince's version. He always, his version's always, I'm sure he recorded it in the 70s or something. And I'm <laughs> sure you is just the letter U. Yeah, right. yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and were is a four for some reason. <laughs> Turns out he was just lazy. <laughs> yeah, Prince was lazy. <laughs> He's got like more music like that's not released than and then he's really and he released a mountain of music. Yeah. And he's got and he's got that's like why he didn't have mountains. time to write. He had a short yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If he was writing out all his YOUs, we wouldn't have gotten half the albums. I don't have time for that. <laughs> all right. Let's go down to Andrew Cassess for the verdict on this game. This is a tough one. This is uh, like like these are three great albums. These are three great um uh, uh you know music is so great. I love music and and it's hard to it's hard to pick like like uh the Oasis album has so many great songs on it, so many great hits on it. Uh you know, I think of Champagne Supernova. I just love that song so much. And they're of course a huge a huge band. They were they were mega a mega act in the middle of the 90s. And I love Cyndi Lauper. Uh, she's a great artist. She's really a fantastic artist, um, you know, from you know, Brooklyn born. Um, and that album was, was huge in 1983, but, but uh, Billy Joel tops them all. Billy Joel is one of my favorite musicians, uh, favorite artists of all time. And, uh, and, uh, and so 52nd street has got to take it. What year did you see him? I don't know, but it was maybe three or four years ago. Is that all possible? Right, so that's three not or four that years far ago. ago. It's not that long. No, it wasn't ago. that long ago. Um, yeah, I never saw him back in the day on Long Island, but I finally got to see him at, at one of the Madison Square Garden shows. Um, and it was just it was just great. It was almost almost as good as seeing McCartney at uh, Yankee Stadium, which has to be the best show I've ever seen in my life. 
uh, but man, but but wait. Billy Joel is is got to be my one of my favorite artists, maybe probably second favorite to the Beatles. Um, and of course, I'm from Long Island, so he was he was just huge on Long Island, and um, and you know he's a home hometown guy. But he like he's got such a great body of work, such an amazing body of work. And Fifty Second Street is really representative of of that. There's so many of his of his seminal hits on there, classics, and. Uh, and uh, so I, I got to go with the. With Where Billy would you Joel. rate the stranger, and w- what's better, the stranger or Fifty Second Street? Oh, because there's a definite shift. Like yeah, that's when he starts to get experimental. I mean, do I have it's like picking? That's like picking your favorite child. Yeah, yeah. That's um, why I asked. I, you know, the the stranger's got the stranger's got Vienna on it, right? Yeah. Which is which is the best. Got to be the best. Uh, one of my favorite Billy Joel songs. Does that have scenes from an Italian restaurant? I on believe it, it does. Yeah. Yeah, so you got to go with the stranger, I guess. But uh, but you know that doesn't uh, that doesn't take anything away from Fifty Second Street. I guess my favorite album is like Street Life Serenader, or he's got that great live album, Songs in the Attic, which I used to play all the time, uh, and it skipped in this one spot. (laughs) (laughs) And you remember it like that, right? I remember it like that. Yeah, every time every time I hear that, I've loved these days. Now we. Take our time, take our time, take our time. Get up, fix the album. The same thing happened to me with Phil Collins. When uh, (laughs) Phil Collins played Live Aid and he screws up during um, Against All Odds, that piano part. Every time I hear that song, I'm waiting for the screw up. And I'm like, ah, he didn't do it this time. It's part of the song now. (laughs) Oh, man, that's freaking great, though. You know the story about him uh, after 9-11, right? Where he just got on his bike and just started, oh, yeah, yeah. like driving around New York City and going to random like bars that had pianos and would just start playing for people, trying to like, you know, lift people's spirits. Oh, that's fantastic! Can you imagine being at a bar and Billy Joel just shows up in his motorcycle and I wish, <laughs> I wish I was just that would be so amazing. Although I would be a terrible fan. I wouldn't be able to like leave him alone. Just, oh, play this. Play this. Oh, Billy Joel, you, I love you so much. Love you so much. And be like, all right, I'm going to another bar. <laughs> I'm getting out of here. You fucked it up, kid. You ruined it. Excuse me. I'm moving out. Dude, you got to tell us a little bit about, so number one, like what do you have going on? Now, obviously we're in pandemic, but you do a lot of conventions and stuff, right? I've been doing conventions. Yeah, that's that started up a couple of years ago. And that's a lot of fun because I get to see the old cast members and, and we have a lot of fun doing that. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a great it's a great weekend uh, to to, uh, to just kick back and and reminisce and get drunk and uh, and just, uh, you know, be uh, be be fun. Um, you know, I still audition and do uh, commercials and television mostly um, I, I, uh, or commercials and voiceovers. Um, I did a, a weird one for CBS for fantasy football. They were promoting fantasy football and uh, it was, it was a, like a short film really. It was like a 10 minute fucking commercial. Um, <laughs> and I played the guy who got the first ever fantasy football pick. Uh, but I, some guy named Andy Masamoulis who was friends with the you know, people. They were all friends of, of uh, these Oakland guys, uh, uh, the management of, of the, of the Oakland team. And he picked the Oakland quarterback, George Blanda, who's like a shitty quarterback <laughs> because he didn't understand the rules of the game, really. He's like, no, you could take from any team. He's like, he was like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> so uh, so that was the, that was the last thing I did. That was a lot of fun, but it only aired once. So it didn't get a lot of didn't get a lot of airplay, but it's on YouTube. And, uh, and it's a funny little 
it's like a sh- little short film and uh, and that was a lot of fun to 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 uh, be a part of that's huge i remember like 17 years ago when i was in the marines we did we were in iraq matter of fact it was the first year we did our fantasy football league and we had a guy like that this guy his name was adam i won't, I won't give his last name but he was a packers fan and he selected nothing but Packers on his team. And he was <laughs> not dude, I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, and Anybody who played him, it was like, oh, it's, I got to win this week. You right, didn't even that have was to your look. Bi- that, was your, that was your easy win, your cheap win week. There's always one guy that like screws up the entire league for everybody by, do, by doing some shit like that. You know, the yeah, reason I asked you yeah. I, I, about the conventions, I think I want to say that when we went to Rhode Island, what was that 2017? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Did you do Rhode Island Comic Con? Like 20? 20- I did. Yeah, yeah, I did it once. Yeah. Because I remember there was a there was a Revenge of the Nerds panel, and mm-hmm. I think that was the second day, and we were just tore up after that night. The first, like, we got obliterated. We were out to like three in the morning. Started out with that was the night with Brian O'Halloran. Like we yeah. went out with him, and then uh, we I don't even remember. And then the next day, we all wanted to go to that, and I don't even know what happened. Like, yeah. we just didn't make it. Yeah, we just couldn't get to the arena on time. And there were ah. so many people. Oh, yeah. God, it was like it we was couldn't horrible. make it across that bridge to get to the other uh, location. Yeah, by the time you got to the downtown section, there were so many people already towards the front, and the lines had already started. It was still another, like, hour's wait just to get inside the venue. And then you got to wait in line going up the escalators. and It was nuts. That was a really big <laughs> convention. Oh, that was insane. Yeah, that was a big that was a big convention, a big huge room. Yes. And uh yeah. And uh yeah, it was a fun that was a fun convention. Who all does those usually with you for the Revenge of the Nerds? Um uh you got uh Bobby Carradine and Julia Montgomery and uh and Curtis Armstrong is always there and Brian Tochi and um and uh you know the huge guy Ogre um Oh uh, yeah, Donald Gibb. Donald Gibb, yep. Uh, oh, and Larry B. Scott there too. Um, we don't get uh, um, Busfield to come out, but he came out for for the last one we did, and uh, so it was good to see him nice. as well. And uh, yeah, <laughs> and I think Ted McGinley was at the Rhode Island one. He sat with the they sat the the married with children people like near us, so he kind of like was both in <laughs> our group and the other group. Yeah. Kept fucking with you the whole time. <laughs> I actually had a run in with Brent Spiner. I was setting up my, 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 uh, my table and he comes bursting through the curtain behind me and starts shaking. He's like, Hey dude, Hey man, what's up? Shaking my hand, being super friendly. I was like, I was like, Oh, it's Brent Spiner. I said, that's literally what I said. Oh, you're Brent Spiner. And I was, I didn't know what the fuck was going on. And then a couple seconds into it, he realized that I wasn't who he thought he, I was. He had worked with oh. one of the married with children guys and he thought they said, "Oh, yeah, yeah, this guy's married with children." Like the, um, not you the, thought you were not David the main, Faustino, the, the neighbor, yeah, the neighbor husband. Oh, Steve, oh. yeah, Steve. And so somebody <laughs> said, "Oh, yeah, he's right behind the, the, he's right behind your booth, right there." So he just went, went bursting through to go see him, and then uh, like it took like like five or five or six seconds before he realized the mistake. But uh, I got to shake Brent Spider's hand, who I think is really cool, and I love Star Trek, so uh, so that was I told him, you know, like I'm a really big fan, you know, so. So uh, yeah, that, I get to be a fan at those things because uh, there's so many people that uh, that I'm a fan of from from those eras. Um, I got to meet uh, Robert Hayes from the Airplane movies, yep. oh, and nice. uh, we nerded out about a, a show he did called The Girl, the Gold Watch, and everything, which uh, which I loved. And he loved it because I because no one ever remembers it or doesn't 
they remember all the other work that he's done. And he was like, oh, yeah, I, yeah, I, I love that. That, uh, that I guess it was going to be a TV series or something, and it didn't turn out. But it was about a guy who had a watch that could stop time. And I, as a kid, I thought that was just the Sounds coolest really familiar. thing. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was the coolest idea. And it just I always think of that. I always remember it so well. Yeah, it's the same watch from Pulp Fiction, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It might have been. It might have looked very similar. It was up Christopher Walken's ass. This watch <laughs> stop time in your daddy's ass. <laughs> but the battery was dead, so I had a the battery was dead. Ass. No, no power. <laughs> It was in my ass. It was in my ass. <laughs> Which what film did you uh did you enjoy filming better? The original or the sequel? Um because I love the sequel. We both love the sequel. Yeah. That's a tough question. Yeah, I love the sequel too. it's a fun a lot of fun. And we had a lot of fun filming it. Um you know, the part of me loves loved that production more because um because I was a little older. Right. To appreciate a little bit more. And there was a lot more hot chicks around. And I was a little <laughs> bit older to appreciate that, you know, old enough to really to really uh, enjoy, you know, to, to appreciate that. And it's Florida and everybody's like it's this vacation sort of mentality. And and um, and it was just it was fun. But uh, but the original nerds production was just uh, the time of my life. You know, I've never done anything like that before. And I just it was it was just really exciting. Uh, to to have been a part of it and uh so i have i have great memories from that and so you know i guess the the first movie but they were both really fun experiences and uh and you know it's hard to, it's hard to choose but uh but i think the first one was just was just uh special oh yeah i mean it's a great movie we just we always talk about the sequel too just because the whole Hotel Coral Essex and everything else that is involved <laughs> oh, with that movie. Such a dumb joke, but it's a it was, oh, God. Yeah, it's classic. It's so good. <laughs> Priscilla Lopez, she was fun. James Hong is in a great character yes. actor, and and uh, he's amazing. And, uh, Barry Sobel, great great comedian, uh, who was pretty hot at that time, um, uh, was in it, and uh, and so you know met a lot of good people, and uh, and and it was just being in Florida was great, you know. Fort Lauderdale too, that was like spring break destination back then. Yeah, they had this abandoned hotel, this hotel that was going to get demolished, but before they got demolished, they shot a movie in it, and so we had this run of this abandoned hotel, which That's was kind of weird, but also kind of really cool. <laughs> I had five stand-ins you know they hire a stand-in to to sit there so they can light you and the person's got to be your general height and your general complexion and then you know they because the lighting is a long process so they don't make you wait there they they pay somebody to 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 make that happen and um and i went through five uh stand-ins in that they couldn't keep people i guess i was too short it was too special a thing but i remember one guy lasted one day it was saint patrick's day and he was an Irish guy, and then he showed up on set ripped, <laughs> absolutely just ripped drunk. It was just he was just the most charming guy, but but they were like, yeah, you gotta go, <laughs> we gotta get somebody else. You're out of here. But I remember that guy. I don't remember what his name was, but uh, but he was a, he was he was having a fun time. He he was having a he loved he loved being in that. Why wouldn't you? I mean, that would be fantastic. I asked uh, Felissa Rose this question because she was kind of around the same age as you were going into revenge of the nerds did your parents know what they were signing you up for when you uh 
Like, how did that go? Yeah, they kind of did. They kind of did. Um, they, they were kind of nervous about it. I guess they didn't really know what, you know, what to expect. But uh, but none of the scenes that I'm in is going to be too salacious. And they figure, you know, it'll be, I guess they didn't know what to expect, really. And so, but there was a lot of nervousness around what was I going to be allowed to see? What was I going to be kept from? Uh, you know, in the scene where we're supposed to be watching yeah. the TV, are we really going to be watching naked women? So you didn't really stay up all night. To my disappointment. Uh. No, well, we did pull all nighters to shoot shoot that a lot, but of not time. watching yeah. the video. Um, not watching that. No, that was uh, <laughs> I forget what time of day that was, but uh, but uh, yeah, it was at a set called Old Tucson where they used to shoot all these all these um, movie, these westerns. So they had a lot of other western sets, and there was a sound stage on it. But you had to drive the van, the the the, the crew van, down this like mountain pass, like winding pass. It was the, the road was barely wide enough for it. And I swear to God, I can't believe we didn't, we didn't all die. Like the, the, the van didn't just go like you thought like, this is not going to work. This is, this is the terrible, this is a terrible idea. But for like two or maybe three or four weeks of the production, um, driving down the, driving down this mountain pass to old Tucson. So I've I got to, got to, you know, shoot on a historic film set, which was fun. And uh, and that was a that was a cool cool set because they had all these old western uh, set pieces everywhere, and uh, you know for a kid that was that was a lot of fun. What was your favorite part of the whole production, like the scenes that you were in and and all that stuff? What what's your fondest memory of? I think uh, I you know I, I, I it's hard to say. Uh, a lot of things stick out. Uh, <laughs> the, the party, you know, there was a there was a bust on the on the set. Uh, uh, one night, uh, and I remember one of the crew people getting taken out in handcuffs. That was pretty memorable. But uh, <laughs> my what? favorite part, I think, was um, and there was there's a lot of debauchery going on. Mopery. <laughs> there was some mopery. There was some definite mopery happening. There's no question about that. Um, the, the 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 final sequence where we do the crowd scene, um, and the speeches and all that stuff. That was that was very memorable. Um, there's a scene that got cut. Uh, where uh, one of the events in the in the Greek games was uh, a, supposed to be a chariot race with a moose pull me in a chariot, and uh, and it, it got cut for whatever reason. But uh, that was a memorably fun sequence to shoot. The Greek games was a lot of fun, um, but uh, um, I think my favorite thing that I remember the best was uh, running around on the roof of the sorority house, which was I think like a two second shot in the movie, but it was a big deal. Oh, uh, they're going to let the kid, you know, we're going to let him run around on the roof. You know, is that going to be, is that we breaking any rules? I'm sure they were breaking a million rules. Um, but, uh, but I remember, oh, they're going to let me do it. I want to do it. And, uh, and I, so I had a lot of fun running around on the roof, even though it's like a two second shot, it's no big deal. But, um, but uh, so that, that was pretty memorable, but there's, I just have a ton of memories from it. Uh, uh, so it's, it's hard to pick, but, uh, but yeah, it was, a, it was a fun time. That is so awesome. Yeah. It's an iconic movie. We just, was that last year we went to see it at the drive-in and yeah. with the fog? Yeah, we went to see it at a drive-in, yeah. original 35-millimeter cut. I drove eight yeah. hours to go see it in the fog <laughs> on a drive-in just because I needed to see it on a big screen. Yeah, I would love to see an original print like yeah. that. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Except the fog blocked, uh, what, like the last you hour? See, really, you couldn't see anything? The la- <laughs> I think the last hour of the movie we couldn't see anything. Yeah. We just hear that's it. That's the best part. It blocked all the tits, right? It was yeah. uh, It was a... Uh, self-censoring censor fog yeah yeah. everything just looked like a really extreme glamour shot 
<laughs> God, yeah, it was. Yeah, I go ahead, Joe. Sorry, uh, I was gonna. I, no, we keep going with this. This is no. Go ahead. Oh, now I was gonna say um, that Re- Revenge of the Nerds, uh, when we started my well, my podcast, was the second movie we recorded. It ended up being episode four, I believe, but it was the second. Like in our first group, it was like oh, Revenge of the. It was instantly one of the first ones we recorded. It was nice, nice, yeah. Yeah, it's got a lot of people have a lot of memories of it. Uh, uh, it's a memorable film, I guess. You know, it's kind of it's kind of you know very naughty. Um, uh, they tried to reboot it uh, and actually shot for like a week or two of the reboot. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I wrote a script for a reboot that I was trying to shop around, but I came to realize that you can't make that movie again. You could never capture that again. The 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 eighties was was such a unique time and and times have changed so dramatically that you could not get away with any of that, like not at any of it at all. And so I think that that helps to cement it in a, in a nostalgia because um, it's, it's kind of something that uh, could never happen again. I don't no, think. No, you, there's a lot of those movies yeah. from the eighties. You could never do again ever. The eighties had some great movies. Yeah. It was a, definitely a different time. Yeah. Uh, but there is yeah, just tons of classics from the eighties. Um, I guess my favorite, my favorite of those, of those genres is, uh, is better off dead. Yes. It's yes. gotta be my favorite. I just yes. like, I can't, that's the most hilarious movie. And I read about it in, um, Curtis Armstrong wrote a book about his career and, you know, about revenge of the nerds and uh, told some stories about the filming of that. And he talks about better off dead and that's all chapter. And Cusack, I guess, hated that movie or, or or was very disappointed with how it turned out or and i don't know why because it's like one of the most hilarious movies <laughs> ever it's just hilarious so uh it's, it's one of my favorites i think from the 80s we saw him in a panel i think that was at 2017 and somebody asked him about that he got yeah. very sour very about sour. it kind of yeah yeah i don't know why it's just such a great movie yeah, everyone so, loves it but you know yeah, i mean maybe you thought yeah, it i love it stupid or something i don't know i always thought it was fantastic. i don't know it's funny that's a funny movie mark you have that <laughs> book right that curtis armstrong book yeah i do and uh it was at that comic-con where i purchased it and had curtis armstrong sign it and stuff so yeah i got it over on the shelf here in the studio oh nice nice yeah some great stories he's had a great career and uh and still still going yeah, he's what's that? So supernatural, yeah. or something. Had some part yeah, on yeah. supernatural, which, mm-hmm. and he tells us about those conventions. They have their own conventions, mm-hmm. um, and they have because they have such this huge fan base, and it's this this wild, wild weekend of like like supernatural fans. It's like who, who would have thought? I don't know. I never watched the show really. It's been on for seventeen so I don't really, years or some crazy. Yeah, shit yeah. Like it's that. like an institution like a freaking soap so, opera so, so there's all kinds of all kinds of crazy stuff out there dude that's awesome yeah. and we want to thank you for coming on man big movie thanks for having in all me. of our lives i mean we grew up Absolutely. on it uh obviously our parents didn't take us to the movies to see it but we saw it on hbo like every <laughs> damn weekend some people some people got snuck in <laughs> snuck yeah, in it was for one it. of the first movies that i could recite line for line I think Absolutely. <laughs> definitely. so amazing. This is an honor, man. You can come back. Like if, if you're free, you got nothing better to do. If you want to sing some Billy Joel, come on back on dude. I, I, anytime, anytime I would love to, you know, you know, what I'm about. So, uh, so, and we're all in lockdown. Yeah, so exactly. So we got, got nothing but free time, but, uh, but this is a lot of fun. And the game show formats really fun. T- took me back to a lot of, uh, 
a lot of great times in the 80s and the 90s. And so which which decade won? 1978. 78. Oh, right, because a 52nd Street put you over, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Big win. Yeah, 78. I thought I thought for sure I was going to be the – I was going to just go with all 80s. <laughs> I was like, the 80s is the best decade, <laughs> no, hands down. Would have been nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, the 80s is the best. Maybe October wasn't the right month. Maybe 1983 wasn't the best year of it, but uh, but the 80s is the best decade. But yeah, the 70s. I agree. Like the 70s is tough too because you don't know where you're gonna get. Like some months are yeah. like this one really good, and then other months are complete wastelands where there's nothing going. <laughs> that describes the 70s yeah. very well. So and the 90s are. I think the 70s and the 90s have a lot of parallels where they do the same thing, where it's a lot of highs or lows there's no like middle line so but the 80s there are some great peaks in the 90s the 90s is like a, a less less sexy than the 80s and the 70s but but there's some amazing art from the 90s and really just a, a peak of all of cu- a cultural peak at that time you know the cold war just ended and i think i think it really had an effect on uh, on uh, you know things were breaking out it was an exciting time um but uh, but hey the 70s 1978 is the winner. So it's two in a row. <laughs> so thanks baby. for having me on guys. This was a lot of <laughs> Thank fun. You very much. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Let me know when it's going to air and, uh, and, uh, or when you're going to release it or we're not going live live. Are we No, no. Okay. <laughs> Eventually. <All right>. <laughs> you never we, know. Uh, we're going to go to video soon. Once all the lockdown shit goes up, hopefully sooner than that. But uh, okay, I'll have to put on a shirt then. <laughs> <laughs> I meant to say something about that, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I figured it was. I figured it was cool, but you know. <laughs> well, all right, man. All right, thanks Take again, it easy. bro. Be well, and uh, we'll be in touch. All right, sounds good. Take care, Andrew. Right, nice talking to you guys. Nice hanging out with you Bye-bye. guys. You bet. Take it easy. All right, jewelers. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to end this episode right here. But don't worry, if you've missed an episode, you can always head back on DuelingDecades.com, where you can subscribe to all of our episodes everywhere podcasts are available. And while you're on the interwebs, head on over to Facebook.com forward slash DuelingDecades, where you can join our private group and share some of your very own retro memories. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.